We're in uh, Ephesians. We are, we are working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're in the deep end of the pool. And that's, um, that's not my choice. That's God's, because that's the way he moved the Apostle Paul to write to this church, or these churches. And uh, we have been brought face to face with uh, the majesty and power of God. And, and it's uh, both wonderfully comforting, it is terrifying, it is awe-inspiring, it is humbling. And we will continue here in this section to be brought face-to-face with the reality of who God is. And so we begin another section of the letter here, looking at verses 9 and 10, really the end of 8 and through 10. And it brings us face-to-face with the mystery of God's will. The mystery of God's will. I was thinking about different ways to entitle the message this morning. You know, I thought about, um, you know, uh, God's will discovered here. Or, you know, maybe if we had one of those signs that you put out by the road, we could have done that, you know, and see if that would inspire people to come and to listen. But I'm never that creative. And so uh, we end here with the mystery of God's will. You know, it's an expression just taken out of the text. But I... What I want to do as we begin together is I just want to think with you a little bit. Think soberly together. So here's a question for you. The question is this. What's going on in the world? What is going on in this world? War, that's what's going on. According to one internet site that I checked that tracks such things, there are presently 67 countries at war in the world today. Almost 800 various groupings of people fighting. Some formal armies, some more informal But 67 countries engaged in war, almost 800 groups actively killing each other. What's going on in the world? Poverty, that's what's going on in the world. This world is increasingly racked by poverty. Those who keep track of such things report that 80% of the world lives on less than $10 U.S. a day. 80% of the world on less than $10 U.S. a day. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. The wealth disparity in the world is not narrowing, it's growing. Which means that those at the very top of the heap are growing increasingly wealthy while the rest of the world is increasingly impoverished. Disease 
is running rampant in our world. And a good bit of it is likely the the, uh, offshoot of the poverty, meaning people's immune systems are compromised because of malnutrition and unable to fight against the various diseases. The world is a hostile place. People are hostile. It's almost as though we live in a pressure cooker with the heat turned up. There's a veneer of civility, but it is quickly pierced. And of course, death is forever stalking each and every one of us. What's going on in the world? And what will the future bring? What will the future bring? Is it going to get better? Is it... Is it just a matter of of us putting our heads together and and sort of figuring it out? Discovering the cures for all these diseases and being better about allocating resources and maybe a few more peace conferences and we'd stop killing each other? Or is it more the same? Is really that what we're to expect. Will evil prevail? Will it prevail? Where, it's all, where is it all going? People want answers to these questions. Most people. At least those people that don't have earbuds in and are walking around self-anesthetized. But young and old want answers. And we know stuff's broken, isn't it? It just doesn't work like it. Like you deep down know it ought to work. It shouldn't be like this. For most people, life is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's an enigma wrapped in a riddle. It often is cruel, seemingly pointless, circular, and depressingly self-defeating. And for our young They, in particular, sense this reality. Again, for many people, life would be best described as long bouts of gray and stormy weather, occasionally punctuated by a ray of light. Massive numbers of people here in the U.S., and I can only speak to the U.S., take psychotropic drugs daily in order to cope with life. 
20% of Americans are taking mood-altering drugs on a daily basis. One in five. That's the evidence. All the evidence you need is that people sense that life is not right. And they're trying to dull the pain. That's pretty depressing, isn't it? There could be. But, beloved, I'm here to tell you that history is not circular. Let me say it again. History is not circular. It is going someplace. It is going someplace. We are not destined to repeat the mistakes of the past. Nor will the wicked prevail. Sin, death, and Satan will not win in the end. They will not win at the end. And, and how can I make such a, a bold statement? We can, I can make this bold statement because I know unequivocally that's what the gospel is all about. It's what it's all about. The word gospel means good news. Good news. And what is the good news? The good news is this, is that, that from one end of creation to the other, God is on his throne, and he reigns supreme. And he has sent his own son into the world to deal with the problem of sin and wickedness. And to deal with it in the most amazing way, which is to take the, the, drew, the due penalty that is justly incurred by all who participate in such wickedness, which is all of us, upon himself. And to extinguish the judgment due our sin. But it doesn't end there. The gospel message, the good news, is more than just, I'm forgiven. In fact, I think that's one of the deficiencies with a a lot of, of gospel preaching. And what I mean by that is, is, is that the gospel has in some quarters become what I call flattened. Flattened or individualized, or even an escapist approach. What do I mean by flattened? What I mean by flattened is that for some, the next thing to look for is the return of Christ and the establishment of of the eternal state. And that is, is wonderful, and we do look forward to the return of Christ, and we do look forward to the establishment of the eternal state. But the prophets of the Old Testament are very, very clear that the promises made long ago by God through the prophets to his ancient people Israel will be fulfilled. 
that the Messiah will come here to earth and establish an earthly kingdom in which prosperity and peace will reign and rule from sea to sea. That the earth will begin to, to fulfill that which God had built and designed into it. That sin and, and all of its consequences will be rolled back. That human flourishing will begin to radiate out. I think when we don't consider this reality, life is flattened. It loses some of its vibrance and texture. The gospel is sometimes individualized, meaning that the focus is on on this personal salvation. In its worst forms, it can look like fire insurance. Believe on Jesus and you will escape the fire of hell and that's all you need. Go on with the rest of your life. But even in not in, in that extreme caricature of it, I think there's still often an overemphasis on this individualization of, of me and, and Christ and, and his work to, to redeem me from my sin. And I, I really don't think too much beyond what are the implications of being delivered from sin. What does it all mean? How does it affect relationships? What are redeemed people? What do they live like? If we're a new creation in Christ, what does that mean? And and how does it look? What does it do to our homes? How does it affect the way we conduct business? What about our communities? What about our friendships? If Jesus is Lord, and he is, then he is Lord of all. That includes all thought, all knowledge, all the disciplines of learning, the arts, the sciences, politics, economics, relationships. All of it comes under the Lordship of Christ. And for those who are his children, wherever we find ourselves, this good news needs to permeate from us. There is the escapist gospel as well, and that's kind of the idea that the world is circling the drain, so beam me up, Scotty. Right? Just get me out of here. And I understand that. I mean, I've got my days, believe me. Right? Hit the switch, get me home. Christ will return for his church and he will take us to be with him in his timing. The timing of his choice. Not mine and not yours. And beloved, we may be here a very long time. It looks like it couldn't possibly get much worse 
But I am sure that for the last 2,000 years there have been many, many followers of Christ who have gone before us who have thought it surely cannot get much worse. He is coming. But no man knows when. And so we're to live in the light of the certainty of his return and the recognition that we may have an entire life's work before us. We have to live in that balance. So what does the future hold? Well, if you haven't found your way there yet to Ephesians in the first chapter, the answer to the question is found in this morning's text. Ephesians chapter 1, second half of verse 8 and through verse 10. Here Paul introduces us to the topic of the mystery of God's will. Paul will return again and again to this topic throughout the letter to the Ephesians. But it's here in chapter 1 and beginning really in verse 9 there that he begins to unfold that mystery for us. And the implications of this mystery are profound. Profound. So over the next couple of weeks, as we look at the text together, we want to make six observations. Six observations regarding God's will that will help us to penetrate into the mystery. Six observations. Let me read for you the text, and obviously we're not going to get to all six this morning. Verse 8, the New American Standard says in the second half of the verse, In all wisdom and insight, he, that is the Father, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that would be Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Six observations. We'll begin this morning with the first one. The first observation, the mystery of God's will first was revealed to us in the gospel. The mystery of God's will was revealed to us in the gospel. This is the first observation. And it is simply this, that that with regard to God's will, we would have no idea what it is and what it means had God not taken the initiative to make it known to us. Look what Paul says here. He made known to us the mystery of his will. He made it known to us. That is, that that God takes the initiative. It is not something we figure out on our own. This, by the way, is inherent in the very word mystery. It's inherent in the word mystery. The biblical word translated here mystery and really transliterated because it is a Greek word. 
is not like the English word mystery. When we use the word in the English language mystery, we, we typically refer to something that is curious or, or, or unexplained or, or sort of puzzling, and, and you try to dope it out. And, you know, many of us, we enjoy reading mysteries or watching mysteries, you know, the kind of the whodunit genre. And that's usually what we talk about when we use the word mystery. But biblically speaking, the word mystery or mysterion in the, in the Greek, and you can see how it gets transliterated here over into the English, refers to that which was hidden, previously unknown, and thus incomprehensible. Hidden, previously unknown, and thus incomprehensible to both man and angels. Unless and until God sees fit to disclose it through revelation. That is very, very important. The mystery cannot be known because it's hidden. You can't even know about it. It's hidden away. And because it's hidden away, it's, it's incomprehensible. It's not that, well, if I could just piece the clues together, I could figure this out. No. No, you can't. Here in the third chapter of this letter, notice in verse 10, we're jumping into the middle of something, and I don't have time to develop it all for you. We will get there, by the way, Lord willing. But notice what Paul says. He says, that the, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, and check this out, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you see that? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, that this mystery is off limits to the angelic realm unless and until God reveals it to them. So it's not just like humanity is doesn't know what's going on. It's the angelic realm also, unless and until God reveals it. Over in 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 12. Context here, beginning in verse 10, is the prophets who spoke under inspiration of the Spirit of God, they made careful search and, and, and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And here's the phrase I'm looking for. Things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. That is, that the angelic realm doesn't understand it either until God reveals it. People ask sometimes, uh, they, they will say, well, doesn't Satan know that, you know, that he doesn't win? <laughs> well, yes and no. No. 
as God progressively reveals the reality of what has happened, as he has revealed it in the Scriptures, then, then yes, then Satan came to understand that he doesn't win. But he keeps trying as a, as a demonstration of the, of the hardness and evil and rebellion of his own heart, in that he doesn't believe that he won't win. But there in the garden, when God says to the serpent, right, you shall bruise him on the heel, but he shall bruise you on the head. Did Satan know at that point in time that it was all lost cause? No, I don't think so. This mystery concept is very, very important in the Scriptures. And it is always associated in some way with Christ and his kingdom. The mystery, there's really, there are aspects to it, but the mystery, as it were, is is kind of one reality, and and it's a reality that deals with Christ and his kingdom. That is the mystery of the Scriptures. It is the mystery of God's will. Let me show you this. We're going to... We're going to look at a bunch of scriptures together, so you know, get your get your Bible out and your fingers, you know, limbered up. Okay, start like this. And when I say go, drop it and open it. Okay, it's the way they do it in children's ministries. Some of those kids are pretty fast too, by the way. So this is not an exhaustive list; it's a representative list. Tracking this concept of mystery. So it begins in uh, Daniel's second chapter. The second chapter of Daniel. You remember the background here in the second chapter of Daniel. Daniel taken captive into Babylon by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and there he raises, he's, he's raised to a place of prominence in the kingdom and so forth. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by a dream that he has. And so he decides he's going, to tra- he's going to test the wise men of his day, the sages. And he basically gives them a simple test. He says, hey, you know what? I had a terrible dream. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me what it means. Sure, we're great. We're happy to do that. You know, let's just give us the sheep entrails and we'll figure it out for you. And he says, no, 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 wait a minute. Here's what I want you to do. I'll know that you're telling me what it really means if you can tell me what it is. So you just tell me what it is first, then tell me what it means. And just to make it fun, if you can't, I'm going to kill you all. I'm going to kill you all. And they say, nobody can do that. And so he issues the order, okay, fine, you're all dead. So he sends out the captain of the bodyguard to, to go to begin to, you know, sort of round him up and so forth. And he comes to Daniel and, and basically says, hey, you know what? And I, I think he had a, a liking of Daniel. He basically says to him, hey, you know what? Sorry, you're part of this group and, you know, you're going to get killed. And Daniel says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Give me a little chance to pray and fine. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. That's the word. This mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. 
Notice, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Well, what was this mystery? Well, over in, in uh, verses 27 and following, Daniel answers before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. In other words, Daniel says, I don't know the answer here because I'm smarter than all the rest of them. I only know what I know because God has revealed it and what he has revealed concerns the end. And so we all know the, the, the vision and dream of the king, right? There was a statue, and the statue was composed of four different metals, gold, silver, bronze, and then iron with feet of iron and clay. And Daniel folds it, unfolds it out for him. Each of the metals represents a, a world empire. Each world empire consumes the preceding one. And the iron empire is not consumed by another until... A stone cut without hands comes and crushes the, the feet of this iron portion of the statue. And then the stone grows to become a mountain and fills the entire earth. That's the dream. What's the interpretation? Well, the head is gold, and that's you, Nebuchadnezzar, and the silver is another kingdom, another empire called Medo-Persia. The third is a bronze empire called Greece. The fourth is an iron empire called Rome. Rome is never conquered. and will be reconstituted someday to be destroyed by the coming kingdom of Messiah. This is the dream. This is its interpretation. This is the mystery of God. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 11 Matthew chapter 13 comes right after Matthew chapter 12. And the importance of that reality is that in Matthew chapter 12, there is a confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities of Galilee. Jesus has healed a man here, a man who was demon-possessed and who was blind and mute. And Jesus heals him. And the religious, the religious leadership there of, of Israel attributes, the crowds are saying, okay, help us out here, right? You keep saying he's not really the king, he's not really Messiah, but boy, he's doing some things that look an awful lot like he is, so help me out here. And they say it's simple. The things that he does, he does by the power of Satan. And Jesus then says to them, well, a kingdom divided against itself, it can't stand, and so forth. And, and he basically says to them, listen, if, if the evident work of the Spirit of God, who is the, 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 the one who defines the coming age, that is the Messiah's kingdom, is the age of the Spirit, if you attribute his work 
as he gives you a, a preview, evidences of this coming kingdom in the presence of me, the king, if you attribute all that to Satan, then listen, there's nothing left for you. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and you have committed a sin that is not pardonable, not in this age nor in the age to come. And then, chapter 13, Jesus begins a ministry of parables. And it begins here in chapter 13. And he begins to tell these parables. And he begins with the first parable about a sower who goes out to sow, remember? And he sows in different soils. And, and initially, it looks like the seed's doing pretty well. I mean, it's choked out in the first soil. But in the others, it, it begins to seem like it's doing okay. And then, it, and then it is variously choked out. Except for the final soil that yields this amazing crop, 30, 60, and 100 fold. You just, you just love how Jesus does this. I think it's Mark who relates this. And, and Jesus, he stands up and he preaches this sermon and he finishes here. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he turns and he walks away. You know, I just, I just love it. It's the idea that he stands up, he preaches this sermon, he finishes with, after telling the parable, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. And the people go, What? And so the disciples come to him, verse 10 of chapter 13, they say, why do you speak to them in parables? And this is the point. Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to to him more shall be given. He uh, He will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. The idea is basically what they think they have, they don't have, and it's all going to get swept away. Mysteries that concern the kingdom of heaven. The mystery to Nebuchadnezzar revealed through Daniel, by God to Daniel, concerns the coming kingdom. I'll turn you there for the sake of time, but Revelation, the word is used several times in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, chapter 10, and and chapter 17, and in each and every one of those occasions, it deals with the arrival of Messiah's kingdom and the overthrow of the world kingdoms that are arrayed against it. You can check it on your own. The word pops up in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. Well, Paul writes there to the church at Rome in Romans 11 and verse 25, I I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, mysterion, same word, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. What is this mystery concern? Well, it concerns the partial hardening of Israel, which is is spoken of in the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, but eventually the hardness will be lifted and all Israel will be saved. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7, we find it again, where there Paul says, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
So what is the mystery here? The mystery is simply this, that it is a crucified Messiah. It is a crucified Christ who is the power of God unto salvation. That's a mystery. That is incomprehensible. It is not discoverable. It's not understandable unless and until God reveals it. Same book, chapter 15. Beginning in verse 50. First Corinthians 15, and beginning in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. He's talking about the reality of the rapture of the church and the return of Christ for the resurrection of the righteous dead. This is a mystery that God has now revealed. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26 Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, picking up the end of verse 25 for context, Paul says uh, basically that he, he wants to carry out fully the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make it known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among you, or excuse me, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is that the, 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 the Christ, the King, the Messiah dwells within his people and and thus assures them by the reality of that indwelling king their place in the king's future kingdom. How do you know that you will be a citizen or that you are a citizen and that you'll be granted access into the coming Messiah's kingdom? It is this, is Christ in you? Is the king in you? Have you been united to him? 2 Thessalonians, chapter 7, chapter 2. There's no seven chapters in 2 Thessalonians. There's only three. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, and verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The mystery of lawlessness. What in the world is all that about? Well, it's simply this. There there is a spirit of lawlessness that is already in the world that is presently being restrained by the ministry of the Spirit of God. Now, we take some time to figure out how that goes about, but... Just take my word for it at the moment in that. This spirit of lawlessness will be more fully revealed once he, that is the spirit, is now 
taken away. That is, that his restraining function is removed. Then this man of lawlessness, which you see up in verse 3, will be fully revealed. And the full embodiment of evil will be turned loose on the world. Verse 8, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. So what is all of this about? The mystery is this, that in this present age, there is, the, there is this spirit of lawlessness that prevails that will become embodied in a particular individual called the man of lawlessness, also known as the Antichrist. And at some future point, the Spirit of God, who is presently restraining all of this, will lift his restraining hand, and this, this lawless man, this antichrist, this one who embodies all of the lawlessness and rebellion of the ages, will be unleashed on the world. This concerns Messiah's kingdom, because Messiah will return and destroy this one and establish his kingdom. It, it is really just another New Testament way to speak about what the vision that had been given to Nebuchadnezzar thousands of years before. Back here to our letter to the church at Ephesus. Just a couple more to track them down. Chapter 3 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says there, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. What is the mystery? Verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, that the mystery here is the union of believing Jew and Gentile in one body called the church, the body of Christ, previously unknown. And in chapter 5 and verse 32, last reference we'll look at together this morning, there Paul is talking about marriage and husbands and wives and, and how they're to interact now that they are redeemed and new people. And then he inserts here, uh, verse 31, with where, where the, where the a citation back to Genesis, and he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Well, what is the mystery? The mystery is this, is that marriage is a metaphor for the union of Christ and his church. And you would never penetrate that reality unless and until it is revealed to you by God. So for all the marriages of all time, people think it's all about each other. It's really not. This wonderful thing called marriage is, is this continuing dropping of breadcrumbs, as it were, that is incomprehensible unless and until you realize that, no, no, wait a minute, marriage is to illustrate the greater and deeper reality of Christ and the church. When you get a hold of that, it changes the way you live in a marriage. All right, back to chapter 1. That's all background. It's just all background. 
Well, my little clock here was turned sideways. I thought I had more time than I do. Must have been a conspiracy. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will, just, just grammatically, the mystery concerning his will. The mystery concerning his will. In all wisdom and insight, and, and the use of the adjective all here speaks of, of every kind of, all kinds of. It's a comprehensive kind of word. And it modifies both wisdom and insight. And, and the basic idea is that in every kind of wisdom and insight that exists, He made known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery concerning God's will. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the the knowledge that that sees to the heart of things, biblically. It's knowing things as they really are. Insight. It's the idea of understanding or discernment. So basically, when you, you put the two words together, and, and I think Paul's using two words to communicate one basic, basic idea, and what he's saying is, is that in the heart of the matter, with a full discernment of reality, God has made known to us the mystery concerning his will. Now, textually, there's a big question, and you start stacking up the commentaries, and they stack really high into basically you know, one of two Camps, which is, is this, is this wisdom and understanding talking about a characteristic of God be, that, that is, that is revealed as he, you know, put on display as he reveals the mystery concerning his will, or is it something he gives to us as he reveals his will? Is it God's own wisdom and understanding that's being spoken of here, or is it, or is it a wisdom and understanding that comes to you and I in the revelation of the gospel? Yes. That's the best I can do, yes. And I think it fits well for both. The gospel is the demonstration of the wisdom and understanding of God. You can track this down on your own, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul labors away to make that point. It is the wisdom of God, right? A wisdom that cannot be doped out by human understanding. The idea of a crucified Messiah, it's foolishness to the Greeks. And it's anathema to the Jews. It does display the very wisdom and understanding of God as to to what is reality. But beyond that, I think it is also something that comes to us in the gospel. In other words, it's it's our source of wisdom and understanding. It It is... the source of our discernment of what is really going on in the world. Getting below the surface, understanding the reality of the world in which we find ourselves. In other words, Paul has been praising God here earlier for the redemption that is ours in Christ, right? He's been praising God for the forgiveness and grace. And I think we can add to this the idea of, of, of spiritual wisdom and prudence. They come to us as a result of the gospel. We know where the world's going, why it's going there, and ultimately what is going to happen. We know the end of the story. We know the plot line. We know all the major characters. 
And we know it as a result of the gospel. And that is an incredibly profound blessing that is ours. Because, beloved, all around you, all around you, your friends, your family, your neighbors, your co-workers, they're lost. They are lost. And they're desperate for answers. And we know the answer. We know the answer. May God continue to give us grace through the gospel to live according to the answer we know. Let us not live like those who have no hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, for the certainty of Christ's victory there in the resurrection. That is the resurrection from the dead that provides the certainty that sin has been conquered. It is the promise of his second coming and the establishment of his kingdom, the overthrow of the world kingdoms that are arrayed against him that have long enabled your people and continue to enable your people to live with a confidence when their eyes look all around them and they're convinced that the bad guys are winning. But with eyes of faith, we know that not true that this world is not spinning out of control, that evil does not have the upper hand. And although we certainly cannot penetrate into the each and every detail, we know how it ends. And because we have trusted in Christ, we know how it ends for us. And may that give strength and confidence to face the future. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.